Baguette. We're all bad here on Fashion Pie Dad. You're on 4 Triple Z FM with me, Jeff Ebbs. And I'm joined by Guy Lane from Vita. Good morning, Guy. Uh, hello, Jeff. How are you? Mm, you've got a, you're a little bit sort of squeaky in the background there, but hopefully it's coming through loud and clear. I, I can hear you clearly. I know I'm on my... Uh, 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 ear pods on my ears so hopefully that works okay Last week we t- introduced the uh, Beta Awakening book that you're working on if uh, someone listening to us this morning hasn't heard of that, do you want to just do, give us a quick overview of uh, Vita and Beta Awakening Yeah, so Vita is a new spiritual philosophy that sees humans as an integral part of nature and this is a really important innovation in trying to find a balance between humans and the living planet because right now humans are destroying the living planet which is ultimately our life support system so there's a sort of suicidal mechanism going on in human civilization right now and vita is a way of trying to explain that uh, through the lens of spirituality and the book called Vita Awakening, which you can get if you go onto the Vita website, thinkvita.org, you can just get the PDF there, uh, or you can get like the Amazon, you know, ebook or the paperback as well. Um, it basically just tries to tell that story in a in a book that you can read in about an hour and a half. And so, do you think that the self-destructive nature of humanity eating the planet or destroying the planet that nurtures us is a spiritual? you know characteristic is it a spiritual problem well it's not a spiritual problem of humans per se because for most of the time that there have been humans on this planet we haven't destroyed the biosphere um i think that it it is a spiritual problem of western people um and particularly something that arose in uh, the culture of humans around two a thousand years or so ago which was the invention of uh, monotheistic god religions, Um, and then subsequently the technologies that we've developed, and particularly technologies around like social uh, structures like capitalism and, um, you know, the the very, you know, the whole structure that we now know of of the Western world. Uh, That's the problem, right? Humans are innately spiritually connected to nature, and we know that because we grew... Uh, we evolved on this planet in the same way as the trees and the bees and the whales and the snails. So there's nothing different uh, about us to the rest of nature except that we've created this layer of culture on top of us um, and that has perturbed our innate spirituality. Now, I mean, one of the interesting things about Indigenous Australian culture is that First Nation people here, one of the oldest civilizations in the world, have managed to... Uh, you know, develop and share technology and knowledge without going down that imperial path of, you know, destroying each other, committing genocide, pouring molten lead down each other's throats and all of the kinds of cruelty that we associate with that imper- associate with the imperial project. Mm. So what you're sort of painting a picture of is similar to that idea that, you know, Indigenous people are in harmony with the earth and that 
what we call civilization is in fact a form of barbarian kind of behavior. Um, so, so I read uh, Jared Diamond's book, uh, Gums, Germs and Steel, and, and he makes a contrast between the Aboriginal Australian culture and their relatively low levels of warfare or almost absence of warfare compared mm-hmm. to the warfare that was taking place on uh, the New Zealand islands amongst the various Maori tribes. And what he was sort of describing there was this sort of pressure of resources. That in Australia, you've got this vast continent where, um, you know, there wasn't really a battle of resources per se because there was just so much of it in such a large territory. Whereas in New Zealand, this highly fasund nation where with lots of people and there was this high com- concentration of people competing for resources. So I want to make the distinction between these sort of cultural, um, anthropological aspects and this sort of way of seeing spirituality. Vida is about understanding humans through the lens of spirituality, and spirituality is a subset of culture, if you like. And spirituality specifically relates to the things that we believe about the things that we can't prove around things like the answers to life's big questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And, you know, what happens when we die, for example? So just to make sure that I've got it straight, you are saying that you think that that the impact of spirituality is separate from the impact of um, the environment, as Jared Diamond defines it in Guns, Germs and Steel and then later in Collapse. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to separate spirituality out as a as a as a particular uh, theme. Now, um, the warfare that went on between the, uh, the, the 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 Maori tribes, for example, okay, versus the la- lack of warfare, for example, amongst the Aboriginal people of Australia, for example, um, that, you know, what what I'm interested in is the relationship between the humans and the living planet. And whether you're warring or not warring is actually a bit immaterial to the living planet. So if you look at our civilization today, where we are basically pumping out all these greenhouse gases, which trap heat and overheat a delicately balanced uh, uh, thermal system on this planet, like that's fundamentally the problem, not whether we are warring or not. That's actually a separate issue, and that's related more to geography than anything else. So if we can just focus on the relationship between spirituality and the maintenance of uh, a a robust biosphere, I think we're starting to get onto a path of actually finding a way to keep the humans on this planet for as long as we can be here, which is actually tens or maybe hundreds of millions of years. And on 4ZZZ, you're with me, Jeff Ebbs, listening to Fashion by Dad. Now, on Fashion by Dad, we're joined by Guy Lane of Vita, talking about our connection with the Earth. And Guy, you've got a long-term connection with the Earth. When you were a youngster, you wanted to be a polar bear. Is that correct? (laughs) Well, so the story goes, I was once asked, what did I want to be when I grow up? And I said, polar bear. (laughs) And I'm 54 years now, 54 years old, and I'm still not a polar bear, so I guess I might have out of that. <laughs> so you think you might have grown up and become something different? Well, actually, uh, you know, when I was in my um, 30s, I, I sort of discovered this interaction between humans and the planet, and a big part of my reading over the last, 
you know, 20 years in particular has been around climate change. And last thing you really want to be right now is actually a polar bear. <laughs> mm, some of the pictures of emaciated polar bears on ice floes have uh, uh, yeah. been very disturbing and uh, images that have connected the reality of what's going on in the Arctic to people. Yeah, and so the the really scary thing about um, uh, the Arctic uh, is this is this concept called the Blue Ocean Event, um, and the Blue Ocean Event uh, it, it relates to um, uh, for the last twenty years or so the amount of sea ice in the Arctic has been decreasing every year. So it, it expands in the winter time when it's all dark up there, and then it, it contracts in the summertime as the sun comes up. But every year, for every year for the last twenty or so years, there's been less and less, and there's some really serious implications to the reduction of the sea ice. Um, uh, and basically, it's when I guess you're not just talking goes, about the um, opening of new commercial routes between Russian ports and the Pacific. Well, the opening of those routes is a uh, an emergent property of the sea ice shrinking. It's basically meaning that. You can actually now sail ships around the Arctic where you couldn't before because there's too much ice. Mm, or but mine ice, for oil and other things. And, and exactly, and this is um, this is exactly right. You know, there's all sorts of mineral resources up there that people are now rubbing their hands together. So as the ice shrinks, there's less um, sunlight reflected off the ice, which means more of that sunlight is going into the sea, which means you get more heat entering the earth system and heat entering the earth system is fundamentally the biggest crisis that we have on this planet right now and it's basic simple thermodynamics and physics which has been understood really really well um, for the last 100 200 years Um, and we're basically cooking this planet to death well we're cooking ourselves to death i don't think the planet is going to do anything weird and wonderful but life upon it may be stretched and yeah, i mean i mean I, I say i say the planet i'm referring to the living planet i'm not talking about the rock right mm-hmm. and okay and and the thing is that this 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 planet this the, the the temperature of this planet has remained maintained very very constant over billions of years because of living organisms have got this mechanism by which they actually influence the composition of the atmosphere to make sure that the temperature stays the right. But what the humans have done over the last 200 years is that we've disturbed that natural um, temperature regulation system, and that's going to potentially collapse the entire system down into a state um, which would eradicate humans. Uh, there's no way that we could survive on this planet if if we allow the temperatures to get up to five or six degrees above baseline, which is what is going to happen if, the, if we allow this event to be triggered. Now, my question to you then, Guy, is why do you uh, see that as a spiritual event? Why is that not just an unfortunate accident? You know, we mucked around in the lab, we opened a couple of different bottles, we mixed them up and we created a deadly cocktail that blew us up and killed us. You know, the, yeah. you're, you're, you're associating that as a, with a uh, sort of spiritual fail or, failure or malady of some kind. Can you just talk to that for a moment? Yeah, so a frame of reference would be the Aboriginal Australian people <clears throat> who lived on this continent for, call it, 50 to 100,000 years, for argument's sake, and who hadn't 
destroyed the biosphere in the process, right? When the, when the Western people arrived in Australia, this place was abundant with food, abundant with wildlife, abundant with forest. Because these people had a relationship to the planet, spiritual relationship in terms of the storytelling about where they came from and why they were here and how they should comport themselves during their time, that was in balance with the ecosystem. Whereas the Western people have got a spiritual belief system which is either cocked towards uh, the belief in some sort of God creature and, the, you know, when you die you go to heaven for eternity, so who really cares what happens to the planet Earth? Or you've got this whole cocktail or this smorgasbord of uh, what they call New Age spiritual beliefs, which are sort of all over the place, none of which have any fundamental or meaningful relationship to the living planet. And spirituality is incredibly important because it's a fundamental driver of human behaviours. What we believe is fundamental to what, how we behave, and how we behave dictates how we relate to the living planet. So that idea that the planet is here for our use, the sort of fundamental idea that, you know, is mentioned in the first book of the Bible, which means that Islam, Judaism and Christianity all have this notion that, you know, God made the earth and on the seventh day made humans and the planet's here for us and for our use. And that... Um, you know, Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden was some kind of paradise. But even in that story, there's an original sin where everything goes wrong. So isn't it possible that, I mean, where do you see that disconnection or that shift from an Indigenous harmonious relationship with the earth to an exploitative um, inequitable one. Well, I mean, I, I mean, for most of human history, we've 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 engaged. Say, say for example, that the humans have been around for around two hundred thousand years. Okay, so the Bible was what two thousand years old. So you've got this vast tract of human experience on this planet where we've had a intimate relationship with the with the living planet as an integral part of it. And then around 2,000 years ago, we've come up with this whole new conception that somehow that we were actually planted here by some sort of spacefaring god creature, that we're not, not actually intimately connected to the ecosystem. So that's fundamentally where the Western problem comes from, the Western spiritual problem comes from. And then around about 1900, uh, when there was this sort of uh, uh, opening up of the uh, the global markets and you had like this uh, spiritual entrepreneurialism that people could bring in ideas about spirituality from other parts of the world, you ended up with this big smorgasbord and us Western folk like to be free and we like to pick and put whatever we like on our plate. And we've now got a plate full of spiritual ideas that none of which fundamentally connect us to the biosphere. Mm. And this is un at the heart of the ecological crisis on the planet. This is why we can sit and watch a, a movie in which the planet gets destroyed and we're not actually spiritually upset by that because we don't have a spiritual connection to nature. Which no, is we're more we upset when the popcorn runs out than when the planet disappears. <laughs> we got, we got a more, we're more spiritually connected to the popcorn 
than the living planet, which is ultimately our life support system, right? So you go back to Gaia theory and you look at the role of, for example, phytoplankton, which are the little tiny plants in the ocean that produce most of the oxygen on this planet. And we've lost 40% of the phytoplankton. You hear people wailing in the street about that? No, because nobody knows about it because we're not connected to our life support system. And that is a suicide pill for a civilization. Yeah. Now, I don't think anyone who is likely to listen to this conversation would doubt for a minute that, you know, we're out of control on a suicide mission, that humans' disconnection with the systems that support us are responsible for the, you know, deadly situation we put us and all other living things on the earth in. I think the... The challenge for most people hearing you connect the invention of a deity to that disconnection with the earth would would have is well how does that how does that help us and i mean i'm I'm asking you the questions about why you know how do you connect that uh, spiritual disconnect with those behavioral sort of problems because i think um most economists and a lot of scientists would say well uh you know primitive using the term as they would use it primitive humanity didn't uh, create much of a problem for the planet because they weren't they didn't have highly developed technology you can do a lot more damage to a forest once you invent a bulldozer than you can possibly do when you've got an um, stone or even a metal axe so the develop of technology could be um, entirely blamed on the destruction that we're causing couldn't it yeah and so if you go back to the um, the Paul Ehrlich equation uh, I IPAT um, so impact the environmental impact of a civilization is a multiplier of its IPAT so population so the total number of people, the affluence, which is, means the sort of amount of resources they've got, multiplied by the technology that they're using, right? So the, the classic equation about environmental impact sees population, affluence, and technology as key components. So, like, just today, actually, the, the neighbouring house that I'm living in, that the house next door has been demolished, and uh, we've gone and picked up a, a whole bunch of half a dozen solar panels uh, that were otherwise going to be sent to the landfill. Now, each of these solar panels, solar PV panels, produces 250 watts of solar electricity or electricity, right? Okay, now you can produce electricity using a thin sheet of silicon or you can produce electricity using a coal-fired power station. The difference between the two is that, yes, you've got to produce, you've got to use energy to build both of these resources, but the, the coal-fired power station is basically chewing up coal and pumping CO2 gas, which is the heat-trapping gas, into the atmosphere, whereas the solar panel is just sitting there using the photovoltaic effect, creating a flow of electrons, like, within metres of the demand for the electricity, compared to... like So, so technology is fundamental to this equation, right? Yeah, so that's the, the T in the iPad. But the question is, it, where is the spirituality? Well, the spirituality comes in where, where so right now there's a pro, there's a movement going on in the UK called Insulate Britain, which is an offshoot, if you like, of the Extinction Rebellion, where these people are extremely focused. They're blocking these main roads around the UK, and they and these individual human beings, 
62 of them today were blocking the roads into Heathrow Airport. And And where the spirituality comes into it is these people are sitting in the road, putting their lives at risk to raise awareness of the fact that the UK needs to insulate the place in order to reduce carbon, right? And they're doing that because they have a powerful, committed belief in their hearts that this is the right thing to do. That's where the spirituality comes into it, right? So the spirituality comes where the relationship between solar power and coal power comes into it spiritually is that when people see themselves as part of the living planet, they realize they can't keep in condoning and using coal power because they know that that is destroying the biosphere. Mm. So our wonderful leader, the lovely ScoMo, says that technology is going to get us out of this, that, you know, we can just put more technology on and then allow population and affluence to increase without the impact. So that's called decoupling, and people as thoughtful as Ross Gano, for example, believe that we can decouple the economy from the impact and continue to be affluent. You don't agree with that? I think that that is a really a very politically um, uh, 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 expedient approach, right? So if you're going to get really nitty gritty about the situation, if we were, if we were to, say, for example, to use the Paris targets to reduce or to pr- protect the planet going above 2C, it's very difficult to see how you can have a continually growing e- economic base, right? which is at the moment fundamentally powered by fossil fuels. Now, if you want to transition away from fossil fuels, you've actually got to use fossil fuels to build the renewable energy equipment that then power the new society. So we're in this really difficult phase at the moment. And if the, if the economy continues to grow at 3% per annum, it basically doubles every 30 years. So we're sort of caught in this, in this trap. So on one hand, we, what we need to do is we actually need to be halting the expansion of the economy because the growth of the economy and the demand for energy is part of fundamentally part of the problem. And so this is why sustainability and this whole trying to get your head around how to actually fix the world's problems is so convoluted because we've got to do something, we've, and we've left it so late. We've known about this since the 70s. So we've basically wasted 50 years, right? So the challenges of actually fixing the problem are now so difficult to get your head around that it's just turning into this total shit fight and and we're not going to be able to actually hold the temperatures back to 1.5 probably won't be able to hold them to two and we're probably basically going to lumber our way into some sort of hell and through that process of going into hell amazing things will happen for example a new spiritual movement that fixes things Well, it's the end of the world as we know it and it can get a little bit depressing thinking about the challenges of a climate out of control, the loss of biodiversity, the loss of fishes in the ocean, the rising acid levels in the ocean and many of the other problems that face us. But uh, Guy Lane has written a book called Vita Awakening, which builds the basis for a spiritual response. Have I got that right, Guy? Yeah, yeah, you've got that right. And I think what's important as well in the story, the Vita story, uh, is not just to understand or to get your head and heart around the collapse that we humans have created, 
but to focus on an extraordinary opportunity that we refer to as the Verdant Age. Okay, talk about the Verdant Age. Sounds good. Well, well the Verdant Age is... Uh, so let's just step back a little bit. So one of the questions uh, that you, you might ask is, how long will Earth have life on it? And uh, cosmologists and people that study stars and you know planets and things have got an understanding about the way that stars go through their uh, life cycle. So our star, um, the sun, um, is probably going to continue doing what it does, throwing out heat and energy, or not heat, but, you know, um, uh, shortwave radiation, uh, probably for another billion years or so, beyond which time it's going to run out of its primary fuel and then it's going to start to swell up. And as it swells up, it's eventually going to burn off the planet so our planet is probably going to be suitable for life maybe for another thousand million years okay very 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 long time beyond which time it's eventually going to get burnt to a crisp so if you conceive this idea that if humans don't destroy the planet that we live on over the coming century if we can actually avoid the collapse of our own ecosystem it's possible that we could actually stay on this planet for maybe tens or maybe even hundreds of millions of years. And just imagine what the smartphones would look like 50 million years from now. So you're saying the verdant age is a possibility because um, there's not any cosmic reason why we should be destroyed. And so if we can get it together not to destroy ourselves, we anything's possible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anything's possible out to a certain point in the future, which is something in the order of tens or hundreds of millions of years. We've got a long... This planet will be habitable for a very, very, very long time. The question is whether it's habitable for humans, right? So one of the projections of what happens is if we keep burning fossil fuels, we'll trigger the cascade of climate tipping points. Temperatures will shoot up to six or seven degrees above the temperature where they ought to be. That will scorch most of life on Earth. But then 20 or 30 million years later, evolution will proceed and then there'll be an abundant planet back again, but there'll be no humans on it. So if we can avoid that scenario, okay, skip through that, then we could conceivably be living happily on this planet for tens or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 million years into the future. And that's really, that's an aspiration that we should have individually, that we should have as a spiritual motivation or a spiritual frame of reference for our time on Earth. And when you have what I call the verdant age, which is the time when humans and the planet thrive in synergy together, okay? Thrive in synergy, so we're better off with each other. If we have that as a spiritual frame of reference, okay, that actually changes the way that we behave in the world today. Mm, so, I mean, that's very like a regenerative farming approach, that everything we do should improve the environment rather than well, instead of just not harming it, we should actually be um, increasing its capacity. Yeah. And, you know. So, so in, in nature, there are three types of relationships between living organisms. You have a parasitic relationship, you have a commensalist relationship, and you have a mutualistic relationship. In a parasitic relationship, which is basically how the humans behave on the planet right now, we take from the host and we don't give back, okay? So the planet is worse off for us. Like a mosquito bites you and you get malaria, right? A parasite. 
Okay, the second form of relationship is commensalist, which is a relationship in which we take from the host, but we don't necessarily give back, but then there's no harm to the host. And you can sort of think of uh, uh, sort of like people that a lot of people that try to live really lightly on the earth but don't fundamentally make it better. They just don't harm it. That's a commensalist relationship. And thirdly, you have a, a mutualist relationship, which is where you actually improve the host. So this is a relationship where we get the benefit of nature and we actually make nature stronger as a result of our being here. And that's fundamentally what we need to do. The astrophysicist Adam Frank, who writes about these things, says that there's probably hundreds of millions of civilizations in the universe, and the ones that survive are the ones where the civilization actually contributes positively to the biosphere, and that's fundamentally what we need to do. Okay, so how does spirituality help us do that? Well, it, so spirituality is not just some sort of abstract notion. It's something that actually manifests through our actions and our inactions, right? So if, you're a, if you have a Christian spirituality, there's nothing fundamentally in the Christian faith that makes you want to actually try and protect the biosphere or to take uh, 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 sacrifice, personal sacrifices to try and change things for the better for the living planet. Whereas if you have a spirituality which is geared towards nature, then your motivations in your life is to actually protect the living systems and ultimately actually synergize with them. Yeah, so by wanting to live in harmony with the earth, by being respectful to the earth and the other creatures on it, by not having an anthropomorphic centric or an anthropocentric view of life, not seeing humans as the centre of everything and the highest form of life, we can learn to live in harmony and then using our brains and our technology, that harmonious relationship could uh, create what you're calling the verdant age. Yeah, and it's, but it's, a, it's a couple of extra elements. Firstly... Um, Okay, two things. Firstly, we've actually trashed the planet so much that the planet actually needs us to help fix it. So there's this proactive aspect to this. So, for example, we've put 8 million tonnes a year of plastic in the ocean, okay? We need to go and pull the plastic out of the ocean because the, the ocean doesn't know how to deal with the plastic. We're going to crash the ocean's marine life because of all of this plastic. And what happens with the plastic is it breaks down into tiny, tiny pieces that it's now getting into the plankton, which is the very lowest rung of the food chain. So there's that part of it, is that we need to be proactively fixing the things that we've made a mess of. We've got all of this nuclear waste lying around the place. We've got 450 nuclear power stations that need to, to take 30 years to turn them off, right? By the time you've like cooled down all of the spent fuel ponds, we've got to manage the we've got to manage the toxic waste that we've created otherwise we're going to leave the planet to deal with that mm, so there's and a the restorative other, healing part to the project yes absolutely but the other point that i wanted to make is that uh, there are vast tracts of this planet in fact around about half of the surface of the planet it's what's referred to as oligotrophic ocean water which is basically uh the ocean the, the middle of the ocean is basically very very low in nutrient and there's not really much lives out there 
Now, if you put a tube down into the water and suck water from two or 300 metres up, it's actually got a lot of nutrient in it. You can create a whole bloom of phytoplankton, which is the base of the marine food chain, which kicks off the, uh, the growth of the zooplankton, which kicks off the growth of the fish. And you can actually create effectively uh, oases in the ocean in the same way that you could actually create an oasis in a desert if you could access the water and the nutrients to kick it off. Mm. So it's possible that with human interaction, there could actually be more life and abundance on this planet than there is under the normal scenario. That's interesting because Fred Hoyle um, proposed, he was an astronomer, he proposed something like that in the 50s. Um, He thought the problem was going to be global cooling and so he proposed that as a way of uh, capturing more energy from the sun and and warming the place. Um, the okay, so we we've got the capacity to do wonderful things, and you're suggesting that spirituality offers a framework to help us focus on doing those wonderful things. Is yeah. that yep? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a frame of reference. I, so if your frame of reference is that we've been plonked on this planet by some god thing and that if we don't murder anybody, when we die, we can go to heaven for eternity, that is not a frame of reference that that in, incites you to actually nurture the ecosystem that is your life support system. On the other hand, if you have a spiritual frame of reference that says that we came here in the same way as the trees and the bees and the whales, whales and the snails, and that we have the same responsibilities as them, which is fundamentally to live out our life, pursuing our individual purposes in a manner that contributes to the well-being of the host, then you end up with a different outcome. And so are there uh, spiritual frameworks like that that already exist, or have you had to invent a new one? How how do we find that... A frame that you've just described in outline. You know, you've painted it, you're drawn a wireframe of what mm. that spirituality might look like. How do we f- yeah. fill it in and shade it? Yeah, so I, this, this Vita initiative started in August 2016, and I wrote an article. Um, it was a 2000 word essay, and I posted it on LinkedIn. And I probably would have forgotten about it, except that somebody picked it up and invited me to a conference in um, Kuala Lumpur to go and speak about this idea that I'd put forward, and I had two months to actually flesh the idea out. And the idea was fundamentally that we needed a spiritual view of the world that included that included nature, right? A spiritual world that includes God is, is fine. There's nothing wrong with that fundamentally, but in the face of an ecological collapse, you actually need to be focusing on your life support system. So I put forward this idea that we needed the spiritual frame focused on, on, on the planet, and I used the reference to Gaia, which is the scientific idea of the self-regulating planet. And when I went looking for such a thing, thinking, okay, well, here's an idea, let's go and find who's already done it, I couldn't find anybody that had already done it. And so the closest I could find was neo-paganism, which is some European... Uh, uh, spiritual practices where they try to recreate the pagan um, uh, spiritual practices which were very earth-based that were lost due to the Christian crusades Uh, and also Taoism which is a Chinese philosophy which talks a lot about flow and energy and balance in nature but fundamentally there was nothing that actually spoke had the words climate change in it 
We needed a spiritual philosophy that actually had the word climate change in it. We needed a spiritual philosophy that was grounded in the environmental sciences using concepts such as the planetary boundaries and all those contemporary ideas in order to get us through this crisis because this crisis is so profound. And in the absence of finding somebody else had already done it, I pieced it together and I've been working on this, putting this together over the last five years. Now, Guy, singing, ritual, chanting, we've always been associated with spirituality, sort of taking people out of their day-to-day cares and worlds and everything. How do you see the, the ritual as a part of a spiritual awakening? I, I think it's, uh, it's fundamental. And um, so Vida, as a, as a spiritual philosophy, um, uh, you know, has been worked on over the last five years, but really it's only in the last few months that we've uh, really started to sort of go out into the public with it. But one thing we have been doing over the last five years, or two things actually, firstly, um, on a monthly basis, Vida has been holding uh, moon parties, and so full, full moon parties, so full moon rise parties. So every 28 days or so, the full moon rises, and we gather a bunch of people together. And ostensibly, we actually watch the full moon rise. But generally speaking, when you get 20 people in a house together <laughs> who are interested in common ideas, you actually don't get to see the full moon rise because everyone's gas bagging and talking and, and having a party. So that's one little ritual that we've been interacting. And this is sort of like a way that Vita people who are interested in Vita philosophy can actually come together on a regular basis. And there's obviously around 12 of those every year. Uh, but also, we have another ceremony um, uh, uh, called the Earth New Year, which is um, a, uh, a New Year celebration in the, on the 16th of July, uh, where we get a bunch of people together and, and celebrate a new year that is not the new year of the 1st of January. So why the choose the Jan- 16th of July? Well, it's not the 1st of January because the 1st of January is a celebration of a, of Jesus getting his foreskin cut off, which is a very religious uh, new year. So the 16th of July um, is uh, the date of the Trinity bomb test, which is the first atmospheric bomb test at 1945. And the, and the presence of radioactivity material in the soil is one of the indicators of the Anthropocene, which is this modern era in which the humans are the main drivers of change um, on the, in, in the environment. And so basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to use something as important as a New Year celebration, but we're trying to tie it back to the conversation about the relationship between humans and the living planet. Mm. The um, layer of uh, nuclear material in the uh, archaeological record is accompanied by plastic. Plastic is a new substance that really appeared after the middle of last century. And um, just the sheer amount of concrete and steel that we uh, create is... Uh, not going to have the same kind of global impact, but it's certainly going to be detectable in the archaeological record. Uh, yeah, so the so the geologists who look at these things are called uh, stratigraphers, and stratigraphy is the study of the relationship between uh, layers of soils and rocks uh, uh, against, me- measured against time, and um, and they break uh, the history of the, the long history of the Earth down into these various uh, titles 
and where where you get one era giving way to another era, what they're looking for is some sort of a chemical marker that makes it easy to identify it all around the world. And so using the radioactive material as a marker is one of the proposed markers, and there's actually a bunch of others, including chicken bones and plastics and so forth. So there's actually a debate still going on about how to mark the beginning of the Anthropocene and exactly when it fell. But one of the main arguments right now is that something fundamental happened on the planet around the mid-50s, uh, um, uh, which is really fundamentally when the humans started changing the Earth system. In a, well, We'd had an environmental footprint going back tens of thousands of years, right, all the way back to early farming. But we didn't start to muck the system up until around about the mid-50s. And this is the point. And the... And the the radioactive contamination is one of the potential markers of that change. And the middle of the 20th century is also the point when most of the exponential graphs take off. So if we look at Will Steffen's great acceleration, um, you know, yeah. you only need to map the 20th century to see that ex- exponential curve uh, take off. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that, that great acceleration, is, to use that phrase you've used, um, happened at the end of the Second World War. And so what, what the Second World War did was it established global capitalism as, a, as an economic model, but it spread it far and wide. And it, and it really started to then create economic growth, and economic growth begets um, the production of all of these different minerals which find, find their way into the soils. Mm. Uh, now, p- part of that, um, you know, we call it the Green Revolution because we increase the productivity of farmland in the short term through industrial chemicals and uh, the industrialisation of agriculture. So from uh-huh. many people's point of view, uh, that marks the beginning of war on the planet. So the war machine that had been built, um, you know, to fight the Second World War was suddenly turned uh, on the on the planet itself. And so it's a little wonder that, you know, plastic and all of the other uh, things have accelerated. Last time we spoke, I challenged you on the use of war analogies as a way to sort of discuss these planetary issues. And it occurred to me after that conversation that perhaps the way that we should be thinking about the war analogies is that we've been at war on the planet for half a century or more. And um, we need to find the alternative. And it's little wonder that we can't think of other language yeah. because we, people who are your or my age or younger, which is just about all living people, oh. given how old I am, <laughs> um, most of us have grown up in an age where we are basically at war on the planet. We've seen the wilderness as the enemy. And, you know, despite our sort of creation of national parks and fighting for the environment, we still, you know, live in this uh, society that's based on taming and subduing nature. Yeah, and and look, again, I just, I really resonate with using the war analogy to describe this is not good because we don't want to promote war, but on the other hand, it's actually a very, very, it's a very useful tool. It's a very good, it's a useful tool. It allows you to do lots of different things. There's you know, in the in the study of how people learn things, they learn things by comparing it to something that they understand, right? 
So if I want to help people get their head around Vita, I've got to help them get their head around Vita by comparing it to something that they already know. And and war is a is a, is a good analogy. And it, and it, and really we are. And there is there is a there is a war going on between the humans and our life support system. And that and that and just using that frame of reference that we are at war with our life support system, using that as a frame of reference, I think is a really powerful uh, uh, concept. That when you actually get your head around that, you just go, "Well, hold on a minute. What? What? What are we doing? We're at war with what? Mm. <laughs> we're not. We're not at war with the Martians." Right. Okay, so uh, that, that, our life support system. you know, that frames the problem very well. I think we're going to leave it there at that point, Guy. I'd like to invite you back next week to talk about how we go past that framing of the problem towards framing the solution. Absolutely. Well, we know how to do that, the Verdant Age. Bye, Dad. Bye, Dad. Bye, Dad. Bye, Dad.